The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John 11. We are starting John chapter 11 this morning. We finished John 10 last week. I'm going to read to you the first six verses of John 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is the seventh sign of John's gospel. You'll remember there's seven what John calls signs, Simeon. Uh, a sign is a miracle that points to a greater reality of who Christ is. At the end of John's gospel, John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these Seven, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So as we've studied John's gospel, you should be able to think back. We've covered all seven signs. Can, can you think back and remember all of them? It starts with what? The turning of the water into wine at Cana in John chapter 2. Then, second, at the end of John chapter 4, remember he heals a nobleman's son from a distance. In Cana, the nobleman's son is in Capernaum. Then, in John chapter 5, he heals a man who had been lame for 38 years. That's the third sign. Fourth sign is in John chapter 6, where he feeds the 5,000. Then the fifth sign, he comes to the disciples walking on water on the Sea of Galilee. The sixth sign is he heals a man born blind in John chapter 9. And then he comes here to the seventh and climactic sign, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's a coincidence that John chose seven signs to record? Because seven is what? The divine number. So John is 
is crafting this story. There's many other signs he could have recorded, he says. But he chooses these seven, and he chooses to end on this specific sign of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. For what purpose? Because this sign especially communicates what salvation is. Salvation is what? New life. It's resurrection. That's why Jesus says, John eleven twenty five. if you look down verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's what this sign of the raising of Lazarus points to, that there is for all generations, the past 2,000 years, there is new life in Christ for all those who believe and a future resurrection from the dead. Praise be to God. That's what this points to. That's one thing it points to. There's something bigger, though, here that I want you to see. There's something bigger here that our Lord wants you to see. There's something so vital to the Christian life, we could say it is of the utmost importance. Something so important that if you have this, nothing else matters. And if you don't have this, nothing else matters. It is the difference between a living church and a dead church. It is the difference between a carnal Christian and a mature believer. It makes all the difference in the world. What are we talking about? The glory of God. The glory of God is the difference maker between true Christianity and all its imposters. There are many people worshiping today, doing so-called worship in the name of Christ, who haven't experienced the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is what makes Christianity truly special. The glory of Christ is what transforms the Christian life and transforms your life so that you become someone who you once were not. It is the glory of Christ that is the big difference maker. And this is what Jesus wants us to see, what he wants us to know. As Kenny said earlier, Psalm 34, 3, this is the, the central part of the Christian life. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. It is seeing Christ in his glory and then exalting him and praising him and worshiping him. And that becomes the motivation for the Christian life. We don't pursue holiness and do good works out of a mechanical rote obedience. We do good works out of a desire to honor him and worship him and bring him praise. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have a sense of the glory of Christ? Have you seen his glory and been transformed by it? Or are you just going through the motions? This is the most important reality regarding your Christian life, is seeing his glory 
glory. Tozer said, A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And when you think about God, you should think about His glory. And Jesus knew this. He understood this. And you see this clearly in these first six verses. Look at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. His name is Lazarus of Bethany. He, it was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. That word ill doesn't just mean sick with the flu. It's the word asthenia. And that actually uh, direct, there, there's an English word asthenia, and it means to have an, a debilitating illness. It means that you're, uh, you don't have energy. This is an illness that would have lasted a good while. This is, a, this is an illness that possibly would lead to death, as, as they say. In fact, the same word is used in John 4 regarding the nobleman's son, which ultimately ends in his death. So this isn't just, oh, I have a headache. This, is, this isn't, I got dehydrated while I was working outside. This is, this is a long, debilitating illness. And it's, John says, they live in this town of Bethany. Uh, Bethany, if you've been to Bethany, it's literally on the other side of the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. It's maybe a mile and a half, two miles from where Jerusalem is. In fact, there's there's a textual note later in John 11 where John says it's two miles from Jerusalem. It's basically Jerusalem. When I was at Texas A&M, when you would introduce yourself, you would always say your name, you would say your major, and you would say your hometown. And everybody would always, you, you didn't want to be from a big city. You wanted to have uh, some character about who you were. You wanted to have a little Americana. And so you, you wanted to be from a small town America. And so that's how you would introduce yourself. And I would introduce myself, hi, my name is Grant Castleberry. I'm an I'm a agricultural development major from Katy, Texas. People say, well, where's Katy, Texas? And I would say, well, it's on the outskirts of Houston. Uh, it's Houston, basically. But Bethany is basically Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. It's, it's a little suburb outside of Jerusalem. And we meet these, these characters here for the first time in John's gospel, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We saw Mary and Martha in Luke's gospel, Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 38. You remember the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus goes to Mary and Martha's house. One of them was serving. You remember who? Martha. Martha was serving everybody, meeting everybody's needs. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening, listening to his every word. And Martha says, Jesus, do something about this. I'm the one serving, and Mary's just doing nothing. And Jesus rebuked Martha. And he said, Mary has chosen the best part. Mary has chosen what is most important which is to sit at the feet of the master and commune with Christ. That's the one thing that is necessary. Well, John adds a clarifying note about Mary, uh, Mary and Martha. Look at verse 12. Sorry, verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair 
whose brother Lazarus was ill. We learn about this later in John chapter 12, that Mary will come and anoint Jesus's feet for burial with her own hair and and perfume, expensive perfume. But John is adding this clarifying note so so that we know exactly who he's talking about. Verse 3, these sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Remember, at the end of John chapter 10, the people in Jerusalem wanted to kill Jesus. Remember that? So Jesus went all the way west, southwest, across the Jordan River to where his, his ministry started when he was baptized by John. This would have been probably 30 miles away from Jerusalem. So Jesus is way out in the wilderness. People are going to him in the wilderness, and it is there that they send this note. And they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Uh, we don't know much more about Jesus's relationship with Lazarus. It reminds us that there are many things about Jesus that aren't recorded in the Gospels, but apparently at some point, Jesus had developed this intimate relationship with his friend Lazarus, and Jesus loved him. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. In other words, the end of this illness is not for Lazarus' death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What he says is he gives us insight into the secret counsel of God. We don't know the secret counsel of God. Sometimes you ask, what, what is God doing in this situation? Why did I lose my job? Or why is this circumstance happening to me? We don't know the secret counsel of God. But Jesus does because he is God. And he says, let me give you some insight to this messenger, to the secret counsel of God. This illness, its purpose is not so that Lazarus will die. The purpose of this illness in the divine plan of God is that he might be glorified, that he might be honored, that the Son of Man might be glorified. Let me ask you a question. Does God ever allow you to endure suffering, hardship, and illness for his glory? Does he? Oh, yeah. Absolutely he does. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Oftentimes, when you face difficulties, hardships, suffering in the Christian life, what you need to know is that the ultimate thing that God is doing through your difficulty is the glory of his name. Did you know that? That's so important to keep in mind, that that's the end goal of everything God does. Going into my senior year in high school, I played football in high school. In the summer before my senior, or this would have been the spring before my senior year, I dislocated my kneecap, I tore the AC joint in my shoulder, uh, lifting weights, and then the coaches sat down and met with me, and they said, Grant, for your senior year, we want you to completely change positions and play uh, a position you've never played before. 
And I walked away from that, and I'm thinking, okay, my knees bummed up. I'm running with a limp. I have to wear this big old brace. I can't lift my arm above my head because of my shoulder. And the coaches are asking me to play a new position. And I thought to myself, this is probably God just telling me I'm done. I shouldn't play anymore. It's time to hang it up. Well, we had spring football right ahead. Has anybody ever gone through a spring football program? I mean, it's basically, it's basically hot, and there's no actual real games. It's just, it's just kind of drudgery. And I, I thought, man, do I really want to go through spring football thinking that I'm going to quit? And I, I just felt a conviction. No, I need to be out there, if for the only purpose, to witness to my friends. Go through this. I'm not going to be a quitter. I'm going to go through spring football, and I'm going to endure it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there. And then in the summer, that's when I'll quit. So I go through spring football, and every day I would, I would pray. I said, God, I don't know even how I'm going to get through this practice. I got this bum knee. I got this shoulder, and I'm in this new position. I need your help. And one of the, the most important spiritual experiences that I've ever had happened that spring in spring football. Because what I found is that Christ began to carry me. And I started to make tackles and interceptions. It seems like the quarterback would just throw the ball at me. Just <laughs> intercepted, go score touchdowns. It, it, it was just like, it, it, it was, I felt like Christ was carrying me. I was praying for the people I was tackling. It was unlike any <laughs> spiritual experience I've, I've almost ever had. And I found what Paul said to be true, where Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory, where he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, that he will be glorified in your weakness and in your hardship and in your difficulty and in your suffering. God just wanted to teach me to rely on him for his glory and not my own strength. And by the way, I ended up not quitting football and playing my senior year because I won the starting job thanks to his strength that spring. But that was to him. Look at verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha. Agapao, it's that deep sacrificial love, the highest love in the Greek language that you could use to describe this love. He loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So John puts that there because he wants us to see something. He loved them. And so how, if Jesus loved them, would you expect Jesus to respond to this message? He loves them. Jesus, the man whom you love is ill. Okay, Jesus loves them. What do you expect Jesus to do? Well, maybe he's going to come immediately. Maybe, he, okay, I, I'll be, I'm leaving right now to go heal Lazarus. That's option one. Option two is the nobleman's son from John 4, that he will say, Lazarus is healed. Go in peace. That's what he, do, that's what he did in John 4. So that's option number two. He could have done that. But what does Jesus do? He loved them, so he did what? Look at the next verse. So when he heard 
that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Option three is he just stays two days longer? Why? Why option three if you love these people? Because Jesus knew what these people whom he loved, what they needed most is to see the glory of Christ. That's why he stayed. So yeah, I could go heal him right now. Yeah, I could heal him with a word from a distance, but he doesn't because he knew that they needed to see his glory on display. Now, what is the glory of God? What are we talking about when we talk about the glory of God? What is it? Well, in one sense, the glory of God is the radiance of his holy attributes. When God shows up, when God appears, there is what's called the Shekinah glory that emanates outward from his presence. His his being literally emits blinding light, and that glory is an outward expression of his holy character. Do you remember when the shepherds were in the field outside Bethlehem and the angels all of a sudden were around the shepherds and it said the glory of the Lord shone around them. The angels emanated light because they had been in the presence of God. They were reflecting, this is interesting to think about, they were reflecting the glory of God to those shepherds. Just like when Moses was up on the mountain, do you remember he came down and his face shone? He was reflecting the glory of God. When the disciples saw the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured in Matthew chapter 17, it says that he shone, that, that the, the facade of, of just mere earthliness vanished away, and they saw him for who he truly is, that he is glorious. It says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And when the Lord Jesus returns on the last day, Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So when he comes, he will come gloriously with the light shining, with his face shining, and he will sit on a throne and the throne itself will shine. But there is another sense of the glory of God, another sense of the glory of God. And I think that this is what Jesus is is getting at here. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, just jot this down. Remember, Paul's talking about how he wishes his brothers, the Israelites, that they would come to Christ. And he says this, he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. What does he mean when he says to the Israelites belong the glory? What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about, remember when Israel came out of Egypt. You remember how they were led? God in his presence led them by day with a a pillar of, of smoke and then a pillar of fire by night. God's presence was with them when they would dedicate the temple his, the glory cloud 
came down into the temple. So, by glory here, what Paul means is the presence of God, that they saw, they witnessed the presence of God in the wilderness. And this is, I think, what Moses means in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, when Moses asked the Lord, please show me your glory. Moses was asking God to show him his presence. Show me your presence. Let me be so near to you that I see you. And God said, well, you can't look at my glory. I'll have to put you in the cleft of the rock and cover, your, cover you with a hand, and then you can look at the backside of my presence because no one can look head on into my glory and live. Paul says in Romans 8.18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we are in heaven, we will be in the presence of Christ, and we will see his ultimate glory. So what Jesus says, when he, what Jesus means when he says this illness is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified. What he means is, is he wants his friends, these disciples, to realize that they are in the very presence of God. Because they're not going to see the, the transfigured glory. They're not going to see the imminent light. When Jesus heals Lazarus, he doesn't transform before their eyes. But what they realize all of a sudden is that they are in the presence of the Son of God. And they see the miracle. They see the glory. And because of that, their lives will never be the same. Their lives will never be the same. They will believe that he is the Lord and they will worship him. And Jesus did this. He waited to do this miracle because he loved them. He loved them. So this is, I think, what God does in the life of the Christian, is God brings you face to face with his glory, his presence, because he knows that this is what you need most. Let me give you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. He said, the happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God, by which also God is magnified and exalted. That your greatest joy is in seeing his glory, is in being in his presence. And so the greatest joy of Martha and Mary and Lazarus would be in seeing this glory. And if you've experienced this, you know exactly what, I, what I'm talking about. It says, the psalmist says, he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That is the highest joy in life, is to gaze upon the beauty, the sweetness, the majesty, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus delays. So, were any of you at Lazarus's tomb? Saw the resurrection? I don't think so. Have any of you seen Christ 
transfigured in your bedroom where you've seen his majestic, effulgent glory? Nobody here. So how do we, as 21st century Christians, get to the glory of Christ? How do we get there? How do we see Christ's glory? Let me just give you seven application points in the Christian life by which you see the presence of Christ and experience His glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I invite you to turn there. This is the experience of conversion. This is the experience of coming to faith in Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, there is an experience of Christ's glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, of course, talking about creation, when God created light in the beginning, Paul says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you are converted, when you see the gospel for the first time truly, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't just believe in facts about him. Sometimes I hear that a lot in, in American evangelicalism, that it's, you know, if, if you just believe these things about Jesus, you're in. No, it's believing in Jesus not just believing facts about Jesus. It's coming to see Christ for who he truly is as Savior that saves. And it's seeing him not just in the mind, but in the heart. I once, I once heard a preacher, and he said, all you have to do to be a Christian is just to know these facts intellectually. No, 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 no. The, the, the knowledge of Christ has to be 12 inches further south. It has to be in the heart. The knowledge of Christ is not just uh, an academic knowledge. It's a love for Christ. Um, Matthew 13, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in a field. And seeing its value, he goes and sells all that he has in order to buy that field. It's seen that this is valuable. It's an affection of the heart. Remember Wesley, when he was converted, he, he knew the gospel for years. But he came back to, to London, and, and he had the Aldersgate experience uh, hearing Luther's commentary to the Romans being read. And do you remember what he said about his experience? He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed, where he, he perceived the loveliness of Christ that Christ loved him, and he looked at Christ, and he saw Christ for who he truly is in the heart. And what happens when you experience that is you are changed from the inside out. God replaces that stony heart, and he gives you a new heart that loves him. It's called the new birth. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. You must have this new life put within you. And it's this new affection for Christ. And that's why Christians are always warm people. Truly, I mean this. There's no such thing as a cold-hearted Christian because you've been given a new heart. You love Christ. You love him, and therefore you, you love the, the brethren. That's what, what John says in, in, in 1 John. 
So it's this experience, this knowledge of Christ in the heart where you see his glory of his character. Uh, Second, we experience his glory through the witness of the Holy Spirit. I want you to turn to the right to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 27, to them, this is talking about the Gentiles, he says, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there's, a mystery is something that was partially revealed in the Old Testament, which is disclosed in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, there's hints that the Gentiles would come in, but it's not overt. But in the New Covenant, the gospel is unveiled to all. So it's a mystery. And, and, the, and the result of this mystery is this, is that Christ comes into the life of every single believer. And Paul says, it is Christ in you, which is the hope then of glory. So question, how does Christ come into the life of the believer? Through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Paul says in Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's an important thing to understand. Every single Christian has the indwelling Holy Spirit living and abiding within them, the very Spirit of Christ. And what that means is this. In the Great Commission, Jesus said at the very end, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The person of Christ in his bodily form is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But Christ is with us. Jesus says, it's better that I go so that I can be with you in the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, then you have the very presence of Christ with you all the time. You can take an Apollo mission to the moon, be standing right in front of one of those big craters on the dark side where you can't even see anything, and Christ is with you. There's nowhere, if you have the Holy Spirit, that you can go from his presence. He is always with you. Paul says this in Romans 8, 16. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's the personal, internal witness of the Holy Spirit, and he communicates to you that you are indeed God's child. Third, we experience his glory in creation. Uh, You're all going to walk out somewhere this afternoon, look up at the clouds, maybe go out to a lake somewhere, maybe get on the road, and wherever you go, you will see the glory of God on display. David says, Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The problem with most people, though, is that they don't know how to interpret creation. What do most people think when they think about creation? They think, oh, well, it's just cosmic dust. It's the sunset is just how the, the dust molecules reflect, reflect the light. It's, it's just pure coincidence. But the believer looks at creation and understands that God created it, and God is communicating his attributes. When you become a Christian, you look at everything differently, right? 
when I was in the Marine Corps, I did an exercise in Yuma, Arizona. And Yuma, Arizona is one of the hottest places you can go in America. That's why they put an air base there because they have great flying weather. But we would go out at night just into the desert and you could just look up and see the Milky Way. You could just see the stars so close that it looked like you could reach out and touch them. And for the Christian, that experience is meant to be worshipful. You are meant to feel and understand and know God's presence. The unbeliever just discounts it. Four, we experience his glory in sanctification. I want to show you this from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is really a, an amazing verse, a marvelous verse. Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me ask you a question. Had the Corinthians ever seen the risen Christ? No, they hadn't. They had just heard the message that Paul preached. So how did they know? How did they behold the glory of the Lord? How did they see Christ? Well, they saw Christ through the message of the apostles. They saw Christ through the word of God. That, the, the reason why this verse is so important, because this is how we see Christ. We don't see his refulgent glory. We see Christ glorified in the gospels that we're reading. We see Christ glorified in his word. And, and what I find so amazing, this is, this is how sanctification works. The Bible isn't just rules to apply. Some people think of the Bible like that. Okay, I read the Bible and I just apply it to my life. Give me the application. What's my application? The Bible isn't just read this, do that. The Bible is see Christ and be changed by him. And then you go and apply the word. The purpose of even this morning is that you would be changed into Christ's likeness by seeing Christ in the word. So what Paul says is, as you see Christ lifted up and you see the, his character, you are being transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit from one degree of glory to the next that you are becoming more like him. Isn't that astounding? Bit by bit, little by little, you are becoming more like Christ as you see Christ glorified in the word of God. I once had a conversation with John MacArthur. Uh, he was speaking at a CBMW event I was doing. We were in the back of the room and uh, he's preached through the, all four Gospels, probably spent over 20 years of his ministry preaching the Gospels. And I just asked him, I said, why so long in the Gospels? Why did you spend so much time preaching through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And he said, I couldn't get enough Christ in seeing him. And it was that time in the Gospels that really transformed the church people seeing Christ. I was reading a, a book by John Piper. 
called a peculiar glory. And this, this is an astounding statement he makes. He says, in and through the scriptures, we see the glory of God. What the apostles of Jesus saw face to face, they impart to us through their words. So the goal of your scripture reading and the goal of your interactions with scripture isn't just application. It's to see Christ in transformation for his glory, that you would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Fifth, we experience his glory, his presence through answered prayer. I want you to turn to the right to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Have you ever been in a very difficult situation, a position, you saw no way out, and there was no other recourse but to pray? You said, God, would you help me? Would you intervene? Would you intercede? Would you just do something? And then God answers that prayer. And then how did you feel in terms of your relationship with God? You feel close, don't you? Because you've seen God work. And so God reveals his glory to us in these answered prayers. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Notice what Paul says in this verse. This is a remarkable verse encouraging us to pray. He says, not that God will do what we ask or think. Not that God will do all that we ask or think. Wouldn't that be remarkable? Not that God will do more than all that we ask or think. Not that God would do more abundantly than all that we ask or think. But he says that God will do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So the question for us is, are we praying to see God's glory? He says, I will do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think. Are we praying in such a way that we are praying mighty prayers to see the kingdom advance, and then God answer those prayers for his glory. I I learned something from Tommy Nelson one time about prayer. He said, take a notebook and draw a line down the middle of the page and begin writing your request on the left side and begin writing the answers to those requests on the right side. And in a matter of weeks, you will begin to see God's glory in answered prayer. So pray big because it's in that communion with God and then those answers to prayer that we see his presence and then he is ultimately glorified. There was a guy named George Mueller uh, who lived in the 1800s. He was a pastor. He was a brethren over in England and he ran all these orphanages. And what he did is when they had a need at the orphanage, when they needed bread or milk or, or school supplies, whatever it was, he wouldn't even tell anybody about the need. He would just pray 
and ride it down. And what would happen is, is like a bread truck would break down outside the orphanage. And God would begin to answer those prayers. And he was known as a man of prayer who saw God's glory working through the prayers. And ultimately, that glory is for him. Six, we experience his glory through worship. That, that's one of the reasons why we come for corporate worship. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect the gathering together, is that when we come together, you experience the koinonia, the fellowship of Christ. You, you experience an enca- a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit, and you see Christ's glory. And then your heart is moved to praise him. That's why Paul, when he's writing Romans and in his epistles, he just erupts into praise because he's encountering, he's thinking about the truths of who Christ is and all that has been done for him in terms of his salvation. Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Timothy 1, 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So I, w- I want you to think about this clearly. Corporate worship isn't a check in the box. Yes, we are to worship Christ on the Lord's day. Yes, he commands us to do that, but it's not a check in the box. It's to come and experience him. That's why we're here. And then in experiencing him, to be changed by him, to see him, to worship him. Seventh and finally, we will one day experience his glory, his refulgent glory, when we see him, when we see him. Look at uh, turn one more time to Colossians. Turn, if you're, in, um, if you're in Ephesians, turn to the right. Two books, two Colossians, chapter 3, verse 4. Paul says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, this is the second coming, then you also will appear with him in glory. Isn't that remarkable? You will appear with him in glory. John puts it like this in 1 John 3, 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. On the last day when he returns, you will receive a glorified body without pain, that won't be able to hurt, that won't be able to sin. You will experience a glorified body for the rest of eternity. Do you know why you will have a glorified body? So that you can stand in the glorified presence of Christ and not melt away forever. So that you can be, you remember Isaiah when he had that experience of God? He said what? Woe is me, for I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. You will have a glorified body and forever be able to stand in the presence of the glorified Christ, glorified God forever and ever. So this is the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of glory. 
It is a life of seeing Christ for who he is and being changed by him. It is a life of seeking this glory. You want it more and more and more and more and more that you just can't have enough. That's why true Christians are waiting to get in the door of the church. That's why they're getting up early to read their Bibles. They want more of the glory. I want more. I want him. I want to see him. When Martin Lloyd-Jones was about to die, couldn't speak anymore. And he wrote, on, wrote a note for his family. He said, do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. That's the Christian. Don't hold me back from the glory. I want his presence. I want to see him. I want to know him. And I want to be changed by him. Give me the glory of Christ at all cost. Heavenly Father, give us this glory. We want to see Christ. We want to be changed by Christ. We want to know Christ. Lord, so may when we study the word of God, may we see you. May we see your character. May we see your power, your majesty, your sweetness, and may we be changed ever more and more into your image for your glory. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.